A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon, and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never mm. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. Obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you and, know, um, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. Was he, was he, <laughs> Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. And I noticed uh, I put up a post on something recently. Oh, yeah, it was a picture of my new pod. And in one of the comments underneath, someone just wrote, Hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. <laughs> Yeah, so it's a trademark, so which is why I have to go first every time. It's what we do. So we have the Poet Laureate of the United Kingdom on our show today. We're upping our game. Yeah, yeah. But what's so nice, Garrett, is we're at an age where we now have a Poet Laureate who doesn't come from some sort of unimaginable ivory tower sort of netherworld of literary fancy he's someone who grew up with the smiths grew yeah. up with and you know comes from the same place as all of us yeah absolutely if you're wondering why he's on he's got a band they've just released their second album he recites lyrics in them poetry lyrics slash lyrics he talks with the music and it's absolutely amazing now i have got a little bit of trouble because we're going to have to ask him because the band is l y r Land Yacht, Yacht regatta. regatta. How do you pronounce it? Do I say liar? Liar. When I first saw it, I didn't realise it stood for Land Yacht Regatta. And you just assume he's a poet, he's more than that it's a liar. I was thinking medieval. The liar, yeah. 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 Even though not, that has an E. Not and his Leah. partner in that uh, is, in fact, someone who's worked extensively with Bernard Butler. Yeah. But you go, you're talking about Richard Walters. I am. Okay. So, but also, you know, he's dabbled in, in music for a bit. You know, he did. He worked with a guy called Craig Smith on The Scaremongers uh, back in 2009. He's had 20 collections of poetry out. He's written librettos. He's written a novel. He's written plays. But he also wrote this fantastic uh, autobiography, that's easy for you to say, called Gig, which was about him wanting to be a rock star when he was a younger man, which I fascinated to talk to him about. Well, yes. Oh, my God. I've just realised that um, I have my mic turned on so I've basically everything we've just said written down in a sort of garbled version as a text message 
<laughs> does it is it make poetic sense is it in a stanza or is it a sonnet <laughs> yeah, broken down into <laughs> iambic pentameter <laughs> oh we're good let's, let's get the expert on welcome to the rock on tours okay guys i'm ready that's well, a big tune for sure i actually wrote that originally for tina turner of course i had gone and found Johnny Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. That caused a big problem in the band, actually. I was having too much fun. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it, and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a pint. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at yeah. something. When we were Recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! Ah! Oh, are you in Marsden, Simon? Hello, I'm Guy. Sorry. Hey. Hi, Guy. Yeah, and hi, hi Gary. Nice to meet you both. We live just outside a little town called Home Firth. Oh, yeah. yes. Have you ever seen a show called Last of the Summer we, I think they we want get to compare to it a lot. <laughs> All the bands we play for are always getting compared to Last of the Summer Wine. That's where we are now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do they ask you to go down a, a hillside in a shopping trolley? Or t- <laughs> um, yeah, so I think they've stopped filming it now, actually. But yeah, it's a lovely little town up in the, uh, up in the Pennines, and we live up on the hills quite remote actually just on the edge of uh, of Saddleworth Moor so between Leeds and Manchester on the map Snake Pass uh, but um, yeah Snake Pass is the uh, <laughs> it's the it's sometimes thought of as the drug running pass between Sheffield and, and Manchester it's always closed either because of snow or accident or landslide but uh, yeah, it's quite notorious and- so it's like the North Silk Road yeah exactly the opium That's travel like- yeah, that's exactly what it is, yeah. But I thought you might be in your shed. Is that shed real? Do you have that, your working space? Because you do your podcast from your shed. Yeah, it's absolutely real. I think some people, when they turn up to be on the programme, think it's a conceit. You know, there's going to be an outside broadcasting van parked in the <laughs> on the lawn. But it, no, it's it's an actual shed. And, uh, you know, there's me and a lawnmower, basically. And uh, I think that's what, encourages so you know the, the the conversation's very intimate because you know there's nowhere else to go and there's none of the paraphernalia of a of a studio um yeah it's yeah. been it's been great fun that series it only started really as a back of an envelope job and then the next thing johnny mars turning up with his guitar yeah, yeah. oh i haven't heard that one. Oh yeah oh You'd like like that one, and and the kid in you must have been Simon must have been in awe of having this guy walking in because I know you were a massive Smiths fan back in the eighties. Yeah, it was it was a huge moment for me. I wasn't actually sure that he was going to turn up. It had been a fairly loose arrangement, and so I was just hanging around in the yard, and um, he uh, he came around the corner and jumped out, said hello. I mean, you know him; he's a he's a lovely guy. But the great thing was he went into the passenger seat and pulled out his guitar. And uh, I think he uses it as a bit of a a prop and a prompt when he's talking. And yeah. so he sort of nursed it in his lap all the way through the interview. And then there was this incredible moment where uh, he was talking about something and almost subconsciously he started playing 
suffer little children you know from the from the first smith's album and i as i was the first song they ever wrote is that right yeah, yeah i didn't i didn't know that and i was i was looking at him in the shed I was looking at the profile of his head and i suddenly realized that the the horizon of saddleworth moor which is you know where that song is set mm-hmm. was running through his ears wow yeah the thing is with Johnny is he, he carries rock and roll with him everywhere because people in Saddleworth Moor and where you live don't have that hair every day, right? That's rock hair, isn't it? <laughs> it's rock hair, yeah, and it, it never seems out of place or uh, anything other than, than rock hair. I, I, so. I, I know my... Um, I remember once being at an Ivan Avello Awards and my friend said to me, he said, look around this room. And you can tell when everyone had their biggest hit because that's the haircut from that, that period <laughs> they still have. <laughs> I was at uh, a sort of rock and roll event once somewhere in London and I was sitting behind Bono and Simon Le Bon. And I think I made that connection there that I could tell from their, from their hair profiles what their biggest hits were. <laughs> <laughs> You've won an Ivan Novello as well, haven't you? Thank you for mentioning that, Gary. I was very surprised yeah. to read that. Yeah. Yeah, it was a great moment. I worked on a a film called Feltham Sings, where we went into Feltham Young Offenders Unit, and I wrote song lyrics for the lads in there. They told me about their their personal histories and their circumstances, and I worked with a, a musician called Dextrous. He wrote the music, and uh, it, it, it became a bit of a cult documentary we we gained access because there'd been a, a terrible racist murder at Feltham the year before and i think they were they were looking to bring people in and and slightly you know change the image of what the prison was it it, it is an extraordinary place there are all the wings are named after different birds and there are peacocks strutting around the prison as wow. well so there was plenty of wow. imagery to work with i sometimes when i see um Paul McCartney being interviewed and there's one of those figurines behind him from the Ivan Novello Awards on, on his mantelpiece there. I, I sometimes have a little quiet moment thinking, yeah, I've, I've got one of them, Paul. <laughs> but talking about that, going into that Feltham Institute, is this a a thing of, of, because we don't want to talk about you being Poet Laureate, which is, you know, amazing what that means, but do you find that you have incredible access to sort of, because of that, you can go anywhere? That's a really interesting question. I, I've noticed that that access has come through just being a poet generally. I've noticed mm-hmm. it at international checkpoints. You know, oh. you get up to the front of the of the immigration queue and they say, what do you do? And you say, I'm a poet. And I, I think they, it's just too weird to argue with. <laughs> it's just sort of, <laughs> sort of wave you through. And because um, I used to be a probation officer in Manchester, and I gave that up to become a poet. And I suppose I imagined then that it really would be, you know, me sitting in a back bedroom, writing and scribbling and scratching. But it has become this sort of passport or this invitation into other worlds and other environments and and different projects. So it's, you know, I mean, there there are strong connections with the music world. So perhaps that's more easily anticipated but yeah I I think every now and again poetry just makes the gates open or it makes the border guards 
stand to one side. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in a way, it is a, an armory, isn't it? It's a, it's a weaponry, that words, and they can be quite intimidating. It's also what diplomats use. So there's an international quality about being a poet. Yeah, I think poetry, you know, permeates uh, a lot of language from political speeches through to adverts. Essentially, it's a language of persuasion. You're trying to get people to accept and believe what you're saying. And sometimes it's misused in those settings as well. But yeah, I've, I've always maintained that it's a very powerful force. You know, it's I, I think of language as the most powerful force in the universe, stronger than gravity or <laughs> nuclear fission. But, you know, you can get people to do almost anything if you put language in the right way, whether it's persuasion or... But you're right, Gary, yeah, yeah, it can be yeah. sharp-edged as well. I mean, it turns that saying on its head, doesn't it? Sticks and stones, you know, and names will never hurt me. Because actually, nowadays, we're living in a period where name-calling hurts most of all. Yeah, exactly. And um, I was watching something on TV last night. There's a big campaign to try and, you know, nullify the negative effects of, of social media. And uh, I think it's been fronted by self-esteem. And that's exactly the point, that it, this is all through through language that really gets into people's souls and, and bothers them and, and upsets them when it's used in the in the wrong way. Well, we've got to quite a dark place very quickly, haven't we? <laughs> I wanted to make a point about, not so dark, but on the general power of language, as if you think of when it's taken away. Like you can go to somewhere in Europe and meet someone who is from, say, professionally, socio-culturally, economically exactly the same place as you where you have so much in common and you would be there's a great friendship waiting to happen but you don't speak their language and everything is stripped away yeah it's incredibly nuanced language i was talking to somebody the other day somebody who was just embarking on a a new sort of romantic life and they were on a dating app and i was saying do you actually talk to people before you go and meet them and she was saying no it's just text and I was saying I, w I would find that very frustrating because it's, I mean, it's not just the language you, that you use, but the way that you use it, which mm -hmm. which implies so much about your personality and, and your character. But yeah, very powerful force. You said um, that poetry was an art form of absence. It sounds great. Yeah. Just just <laughs> expand on it now. Yeah. I wonder if I might have said at some point as well that it's a an art form of absinthe. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I think I was probably talking about what's left out of a poem, you know, the things it doesn't say. So, it, you know, it tends to be the art form of less is more. And you can see that just by looking at a, a poem on the page. You know, it, it rarely reaches the bottom of the page. It, it's shy of the right-hand margin on the page. There's a lot of space there, and that space is the invitation for your imagination to do the rest of the work and i think we're quite scared of silence and an absence you know silence is very dangerous in music it's it's very challenging to a listener how you know how long you might dare leave a dropout it's also very it's really exciting, exciting. Yeah. yeah really exciting because it's it's kind of dangerous and it's full of wonder and anticipation i know they don't like it on radio because they're worried that people will think the channels you know imploded or something but yeah i think uh, i've described poetry before and maybe a little pretentiously as language in zero gravity i'm just trying to set up that idea that it doesn't really need 
the usual support systems that come around prose and uh, and other forms of, of writing it can just sort of float there on its own and be suggestive rather than you know informative that actually feeds into something i did want to ask you about which is the difference between poetry and lyrics which are, because uh, i watched something last night which was brilliant which is a clip of you and paul morley and you're dissecting this charming man by the smiths and it's obviously a song that you know very very well because you drill down to the absolute heart of every line just like that right to the heart in a way and i was thinking because you're talking about sort of suggestion and meaning but i actually would say that with lyrics there's a luxury you don't have as a poet which is that with lyrics you can be more opaque and obtuse because you have the cover of music Mm. whereas mm. with you your words on the page that's it that's everything that's happening so you have to come away with with what that gives you you can't go oh it kind of means like this because there's this gorgeous johnny marr world happening anyway but also to sort of add to that a little bit you know with poetry there's an absolute distillation of ideas and in a way the imagination mm. that the reader adds is like water that's going to bring this thing up to what it should be and music becomes that imagination with, with lyrics in a way doesn't it it enhances the distillation of the words i would absolutely agree with all that and actually just thinking about that interview with paul morley i think in the same program i talked to mick joyce about the lyrics for this charming man i saw mick sitting uh, and, yeah. and he's just sitting there looking a bit and i'm thinking oh <laughs> well there's me talking Mike. about the- <laughs> Me talking about the sort of homoerotic qualities of the language and everything, and um, he just looked back at me and said, I just thought it was a good riff. <laughs> but yeah, that's right. So in um, in a poem, I mean, if it's a poem, you know, if it's text, if it's on the page, all the orchestration, all the composition, all the signposting and signalling and the gesturing, that all has to come through these little you know, usually black shapes on a white background. I'm not there to nursemaid these things or to, mm. you know, tell people what the implications are. But with it, with a song, the lyric is just a, a component part of, you know, something much bigger and much more complex. And I think something more mysterious as well. I think when you're writing a lyric, and I, you know, I, I know this from practice, you, you can do things which on paper might look strange or mundane but when they when they come with the you know suddenly that a chord structure can make the most ordinary lyric transcendent I, i sometimes give the example of there's a u2 song i think it's called who's gonna ride your white horses Mm -hmm. and uh, there's a line in that song where bono sings hey now shalala hey now shalala well you couldn't really do that in a poem and get away with it. It would look very odd on the page. But in that track, something quite extraordinary happens in that little change of emphasis. But it's it's to do with performance, delivery, chord change. And, yeah, this thing called music, which is doing a lot of the, the heavy lifting sometimes and supplying the, you know, the emotions that the lyrics don't always need to give it. Yeah, because mm. I also think, for instance, repetition in poetry is a very very different thing well repetition in a a lyric it is but it sometimes harks back to sort of ballads you know a lot of ballads you can only read now because we don't know what the music is you know Mm -hmm. you know something like the highwayman and the highwayman comes riding 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 and somehow when you read it that repetition really works but there is a difference between balladry obviously i think 
in balladry and a lot of the older traditional poetic forms, those repetitions were often there as a, a sort of a memory framework, you know, to help you remember it, what was there, because until books became a method of warehousing literature, you needed to draw these lines from memory all the time. And I, yeah, I, I think repetition does work in a slightly different way in music. I mean, sometimes to the point of hypnosis, I was thinking of a track like maybe Warm Leatherette, something like that by The Normal. There's this constant repetition of the same thing over and over again, but it it becomes very trance-like. It becomes something that you want to keep going. You couldn't keep that up for seven pages in a poetry book without your editor getting the blue pencil out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. well, fun enough, because we spoke to Sparks a few weeks ago, mm. and they're masters of this because they write these very, very wordy, very arch, very ironic lyrics. But then occasionally they'll come up with something like, my baby's taking me home. And it's just that repeated, repeated, repeated. But it's the fact of listening to him sing that again and again and again. And the meaning keeps changing. And you're kind of thinking, is this me or is this him? Or, you know, are we... Or in uh, Steely Dance, uh, Showbiz Kids, when Showbiz Gold Kids, yeah, lost, lost, wages yeah, lost wages endlessly. But it just becomes trance-like behind these complex Fagin, Donald Fagan lyrics underneath. Yeah, no, and I think sometimes, especially with a, a band like Steely Dan, when the music is so complex the really you know the really simple lines cut through it sets them up you know it puts them on a it puts them on a t so the question coming out of this would be when you're writing oh we we needed to just clear something up it's liar that's how you pronounce it right l y r you yeah. say l y r yeah and uh, actually uh, not the, lure or lure well that's what it sounds like in in the mouths of, of several DJs we had a bit of a, a tussle with the former record label because I wanted to insert full stops between yeah. each letter to make that clear you know in the way that REM would do originally but I think they thought it might be a search problem on Spotify or you know Wikipedia or uh, I YouTube think it would, it would read like a quite hip clothing company <laughs> yeah, <well maybe. laughs> so yeah we've been all of those pronunciations as as you've articulated them there but yeah we, we are lyr land yacht regatta yeah. is what the vicar would have to call and us. why land yacht regatta what is a land yacht regatta is there such a thing and why can't i say regatta that's easy for you to say yeah <laughs> well, that's another good reason for, for abbreviation i think it's, it's completely unpronounceable um yeah. Well, I assume there is such a thing as a, a land yacht regatta. I mean, there are land yachts, and I assume when they get together, it's it's called a regatta, or it might be a rally or something like that. Yeah, yeah. We like the idea that, in some ways, it suggests a three-way contradiction. There are three of us in the band. We all live in different places in the UK. You know, we've got different backgrounds and upbringings and musical coordinates to a certain extent. So... I was keen that we found, you know, a phrase that had three words in it that didn't seem to fit naturally together. You know, like like Sheffield Ski Village or something like that. Or that three-word uh, find yourself. Yeah, what three words. And actually, we've, um, we've looked up Land Yacht Regatta in what three words. And it's a scrubby patch of land near a motorway in Uruguay. Oh, my God. <laughs> How appropriate for your poetry. <laughs> yeah. I think we need to go and play a show there. Because <laughs> so, I don't know if this is true. I don't know if I've just read something wrong, or that, because apparently the building that the hacienda was in was formerly a yacht showroom, which just seems right. so 
oxymoronic for Manchester and yeah but what we have here is beautiful because it's land yacht rock right (laughs) (laughs) we're definitely not a rock yacht band Um, yeah I like the idea of people buying their super yachts and getting them on the ship canal (laughs) so So Simon what I was going to get to was um, do your lyrics for LYR come after you've read heard the music does the music inspire different words from you or do you have lyrics that you've written and when the right music arrives you can find yourself just talking over the the music yeah we we've done it in every direction really i would say 78 percent of the time it starts with a lyric which i write and record and send as a sound file and then either patrick will pull together a composition around that or Richard will write a top-line melody. But we have done it the other way around. Richard's written a top-line melody sometimes and he's la-la'd it and I've fitted words into the structure. And uh, equally, Patrick sometimes starts with a composition and he gives me an idea and I write something to fit it. We do quite a lot of commissioned work and that tends to be lyric-led I would say, but yeah, there's no, there's no sort of formula really. We, we, we're definitely, it's definitely not the case of just trying to put music around poems. And I think with this last album, we do feel as if it's a lot more integrated and coherent than the first one where we were sort of working with, you know, bits and pieces of ideas, especially through, through COVID and having to do all that fairly remotely. I'm sure some, some poems are certainly more concrete poems are certainly there to be read and seen and not spoken but for 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 the poetry that is meant to be spoken out loud and often spoken by the writer him or herself there's always been a great musicality you know if we could dig back into you know Dylan Thomas and uh, T.S. Eliot and people that we can still hear read their poetry Auden. There's a fantastic musicality in the voice. Yeats, even. I wanted to get to that because it's a good point because having been immersed in your voice for the last day, which is a lovely thing, which is why I would say doing lyrics, doing poetry to music, it's it's kind of your voice is an important part of that. And I was thinking because if you listen to recordings of Yeats, he's quite foreboding. He's got a sort of certain darkness where you clearly have a reading voice. Yeah, I think all poets have a, a reading voice. I mean, I tend to think of my own reading voice as being fairly deadpan and I, I think I bring a, a sort of deadpan quality to the LYR project as well to try and work as a counterbalance to Richard's voice you know which is incredibly beautiful this falsetto noise that's very unexpected but yeah Yates and people like Ezra Pound you know very theatrical voices and I think they connected their poetry very much with with a musical language and I'm sure if you went back to the very origins of poetry, you know, around the campfire and in the temple and the theatres, music and poetry were probably almost the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they hadn't become specialisms that happened separately and, and in their own right. I think you adapt depending on if it's you're doing it to music or whether you're doing it solo. Because I think when you when you do it to music it is more deadpan but when you're doing it on your own i can hear you inflecting the pull and the push and the rhythms and some of the sonic qualities yeah yeah that's right and i think maybe that takes us back to the idea of working with the spaces and with silence and with absence because 
what's happening in the background is nothingness and you can tune into that with your voice and you can play with those silences and respond and react to them one of the really exciting things with the band has been the opportunity these days to go back into the studio once all the track has been put together and re-record my vocal my spoken part with the music playing in my ear and reacting to those noises mm. and and also taking the opportunity to be counterintuitive sometimes as well because what I've noticed with Pat's compositions is that I'll send him something which I think is a bit angsty and angry and up-tempo and, and he will put it to something very mm. very downbeat and, and low-like and vice versa and you know you don't always get to experiment with that kind of contradiction in poetry yeah there's a thing with your delivery i was thinking there's a poem i sent this to gary last night the sperm whale which has got some hilarious like absolutely hilarious but it's all delivered kind of from the same place and i said just one other thing on the music and poetry i think when we're talking about listening to poets you get someone like john cooper clark where you think his delivery is born of standing in front of a punk rock audience yeah isn't it? exactly yeah and having he, to compete with that he he honed his teeth, you know, going out on stage in front of an audience that was waiting for the clash mm. and they'd be, you know, riotous and the poets at that time they were called ranters and they had to hold their own in front of that audience, which must have been pretty nerve wracking. But Johnny's got this incredible musicality, his ear for rhythm. Some very well known poets I'm sure would die for that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. for that ability, that intuition that he has. How did uh, LYR come about? Richard came to an event that I was giving at King's Place in uh, in London. I, I, I think Richard had studied me for his A levels, so it tells you something about the <laughs> about the age gap between us. Yeah, that's a kind and... of stalking in the poetry world, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know. I actually found some of your poetry through looking up GCSE studies on the internet <laughs> last night. Yeah, I've been on the GCSE syllabus for <laughs> for decades, and I, you know, I still get a lot of people coming to readings, and they'll come up after to say, "I did you for my GCSE," and I, I look at them, and they are getting increasingly older. <laughs> um, but yeah, he he was interested in uh, maybe using some of the poems as lyrics, and he did take a poem, a short poem called Redwoods, and and set it to music. And then we started talking about whether there was a bit more in this project. And we got together with Patrick, Patrick Pearson, who's multi-instrumentalist, producer, has a studio in, in Devon. And Richard sent me a dictaphone, quite an old-fashioned device with a big furry microphone cover. Oh. And it just sat on my desk for about two years, making me feel guilty that I hadn't done anything. And then one day I had a bit of time and I pulled up some old files with these hybrid pieces I've written that I thought there was something in them but they were a bit more performative they weren't really page poems and I tinkered with them a little bit and then sent them to Richard and then he did something with them and then they went off to Pat and then yeah it all happened really quickly after that before I knew it we were sitting in the Groucho Club or something signing a a contract I knew it was getting serious when we got a manager and an agent but I, I knew it was getting really serious when we got a lawyer <laughs> I thought oh this is big boy stuff now who was your lawyer <laughs> well I, I'm, I'm happy to be able to say because we've never needed him that I can't remember his name so. okay, good 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 
There were some great tracks on that because the first album, Calling the Crash Team. I yeah. particularly love Great Coat. You yeah. know, uh, it's an interesting one because I've always, just, I'm assuming that it's about someone, it's like a father or someone who's not there anymore. I'm, that's how it reads to me. But on the other hand, I've always associated Great Coats with that sort of early 70s rock yeah, dress. Rock fans. And you mentioned a Zeppelin in it. So I'm drawing all these lines <laughs> in my head. Fill me in. You're my ideal reader or listener, Gary. That's what all poems and, and lyrics hope to do, that they they suggest the particular and the specific. So I think you could read that as a, a relationship where somebody's talking about a father figure or a brother. But actually, you can put that coat on for a lot of situations, whether it's, you know, the the older spectre of of heavy rock that's sort of cast a shadow over your life, or any situation where you are dominated by someone or or something else. It's a really important track for us, that, because it became something that we started playing live and then really began to crank it up. I think we, we ended up taking a lot of the live performances back into the, to the studio for the next set of songs. I know every time we finished playing that track and it gets a bit shouty at the end in live performances. Every time we finish it, I, th I think I've got something off my chest there, but I'm not sure what. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cause it's kind of like a, it's a, in a way it's a sort of like Superman's cape, isn't it? That great coat. Yeah. It's protective. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And calling the crash team itself, that lyric, it feels to me that in, in some songs you can chuck out tiny little glittery, lines and morsels of ideas that maybe works in rock and roll but couldn't work in a poem that always has to have a deeper meaning is, is something in that or slightly more specificity as we were talking yeah, about yeah. earlier i think there have been times when i've been writing lyrics either for my own projects or for other singer songwriters when i've been too wordy you know when i've been trying to you know, develop characters or dialogue or, or narrative. And I I forget that it's better to try and simplify, but not to the point where it becomes inane. I just mean, I think listeners to songs are just really interested in momentary details. You can go to a Radiohead concert and see, you know, 30,000 people singing about a plastic watering can. You know, I, I, I don't think it matters necessarily what the lyric's saying at that point point it's just about having a phrase to latch onto and identify with and i try and concentrate on those little details in and amongst other bits of phrasing that just you know carry the rhythm or or move the piece along slightly in great coat i use the word fella and i, I don't think that's a word that i would use in a poem i, I don't think it's a word I would say, actually, it sounds a bit sort of oasis when I try and say the word fella. Uh, but it, but it, in in the song, it seems to fit because you know I'm, I suppose I'm saying it as a character. Mm -hmm. We should talk about the new album as well because we loved it, didn't we, guy? We did, we did. Oh, thank you. That means it's a lot. Some great, great tracks on on the record. I mean, I don't really know where to start. I would like to start with fishing flies actually because I just thought that was. Now, just to say how I heard it, here, here we are, you know, the first half of the song is about the sort of world of social media and the and the internet and the web and, and all the sort of profile and, and narcissism that we all live in. And then suddenly this person discovers putting 
fishing flies together. And then you just list what I think are the names of about, it feels like about a hundred fishing flies, which <laughs> yeah. are utterly beautiful. Yeah, gorgeous, yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And I don't think any of us in the band have ever been fishing, uh, let alone fly fishing. We've never tied a fly. There goes the next question. <laughs> <laughs> let, let, let me save you the bother. You can yeah. only pull up carrots from a land yacht, surely. <laughs> 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 yeah, they, 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 it wouldn't be a very profitable activity. Shopping trolleys. Throwing your line over the side onto the beach. Yeah, that's exactly what we were hoping to do with that track, that the first half is very manic. It's the description of somebody living in a world where they're being prompted and pushed all the time by, you know, the demands of of the contemporary world and and all its pressures and... And then there's this sort of fulcrum moment in the track where both the lyric and the music sort of dissolve into something, I would say, much more beautiful, much more melodic. And it's a, an encouragement to slow down and to be more detailed and thoughtful and focused rather than scatterbrained. And the person in the in the song finds that in making these incredibly intricate beautiful things which as you say you know have very beautiful names as well it becomes a litany uh, somebody celebrating language and and celebrating a a slower pace of life i mean it's all guesswork and fiction but i think implied in those names is just something very artful and meditative and and contemplative sorry to interrupt but i did actually know like one of the absolute top writer producers in the world right back in the 80s and his thing was he would literally finish work go home and he had a set up at home to make fishing flies wow that's what he did yeah pat leonard that's what he did i can imagine it, it being something that you could do actually even without going fishing you know, just just a minute. They, they look mm-hmm. like brooches. Because they're beautiful. They're yeah, absolutely yeah, ex- exactly yeah. right. Yeah, or hat yeah. pins. Yeah. yeah. Yes. If you were Jack Hargreaves, wear <laughs> them in your hat. <laughs> I suppose they've got quite quite lethal uh, a lethal um, use ah, in the end. That's we, interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. the beauty and the, the how lethal yeah. they are at the same yeah, time. Yeah, they're they're barbed. But we, we we played that track live a few weeks ago for the first time, and it felt very satisfying that moment where it sort of dissolved from. The craziness of the first half into the harmonies and, and layers of the of the second half. Are they all real names for fly? F- yeah, they're real flies. names. They're yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So what that gift is? You could just to- be saying that. We, no one will be any wiser. <laughs> no, 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 apart, no, no. apart from Jack yeah, Hargreaves, yeah, sure, yeah. turning in his grave. But the thing is, <laughs> what you have there, with, what you've discovered and given us as a gift, is something that's in the dictionary. They, oh, or in, they're in some book. There are words. I mean, the same way that the poets love the names of birds or the the names of the flowers in the hedgerows. And that's somewhere where your poetry generally hovers, isn't it? Between the tip and the heath. It is, and, and between the everyday and the subconscious. And if we, you know, if we take that back to the fishing flies, I think the poem tries to exist both on the surface, where there's all these sort of reflections and shadows, but then the, you know, the fishing flies is a way of getting under the surface, in, into the subconscious, into the depths. But yeah, I think the typical Armitage poem or lyric will have that combination of everyday sort of commonplace slang, vocabulary, and, uh, you know, moments which are a bit more obviously poetic. 
that's one of the lovely things about your poetry which is i think is why you're the sort of right man the right place for you know for certainly to be the laureate is that accessibility angle of it's like you can hear someone who you know clearly listen to the smiths or whatever you know there's a real everydayness about it you're not sort of teasing us with language i've always seen and thought of poetry as a, as a form of communication and if nobody mm. understands it you're not really you know communicating i, I think if you're uh... oh, it doesn't bother bob dylan too much <laughs> <laughs> well you say that but i i think but i mean apart from some of the real out there moments you know like sad-eyed lady of the lowlands yeah. where we're not quite sure what's going on there's often a character and a storyline in Dylan. I, I did one of my Oxford lectures on Hattie Carroll, you know, where, where he's talking about the woman being killed in the in the Baltimore Hotel by William Zantzinger after he hit her with a cane. And, you know, it comes from a newspaper report, so he's sort of poeticised a very sort of prosaic description of something and, and made it very... He's found the sort of inner story in that... Yeah. Um, what we were talking about I was being flippant obviously <laughs> yeah you just said the wrong thing there guy now that I, I, the, yeah that was the wrong thing Simon did a lecture at Oxford about this subject you're teasing him with <laughs> yeah I'll get me coat <laughs> your great coat <laughs> oh, anyway no carry on Simon sorry I can't remember what we were talking about well yeah, you know that idea of, of, of oh, yeah, singing about, the yeah. news well somebody once said that if you're a poet who's who's shallow and inane and, and mundane, then you know you're misusing poetry. But if you're obscure and incredibly difficult and, and beyond anybody's register, then you're sort of misusing language. And I just try and find that that middle ground. I, I think poetry is an incredibly, as I said before, powerful tool. But you've got to welcome people. You've got to meet people halfway. You can't just be doing your own thing, otherwise you you know you won't have any readers. But in that sense, how autobiographical are your words? You know, I'm, I, if you think of, so I always think of Ted Hughes as being someone who isn't autobiographical. Is is sitting outside of and looking into nature, where you know someone like Larkin is much more you know telling us about his own. It's a psychoanalysis issue. Yeah, Larkin was very you know, sociological poet. He wrote poems very much of the time and of the era, you know, full of brand names and cars of of the times he lived in. I did a series on uh, on Larkin last year, looking at a lot of the poems, because it, it would have been Larkin's 100th birthday last year. And I was wondering how they how they stand up so many years after they were published, because, they, you know, they seem located in, in a very particular time and space. Hughes, I think, had more... I was going to say psychological, but I think maybe cosmological concerns. There definitely are biographical poems in there, especially when he published Birthday Letters at the end, which right. was all about his relationship with yeah. with Sylvia Plath. With Sylvia, but yeah. um, I think poets know that if you use you know, the first person, if you say I in a poem, that people will presume it's you, and, and you can have a lot of fun with that. I always say to students you know you're not trying to write diary entries here you're trying to make a work of art mm. yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. you know there are times when you've got to go off piste from the truth because the truth might be very boring that's not to say that the poem has to be a lie I, I think the important thing is that it has to have the ring of truth because you're trying to articulate an idea rather than yeah. just say something about yourself i just want to have a sidebar on larkin and then we'll have ted use because 
I was fortunate enough to see Larkin's office. I gave a talk about Hull University a few yeah. years ago, and I was invited into his office, which he had designed. Yeah, so yeah. the wallpaper, you must have been there, right? Yeah. So, so the wallpaper, all that 1950s stripe wallpaper, beautiful, his desk immaculate, it's, it's still the same. And the person there said, you know, would you sign the visitor's book? And Larkin has, had actually written the visitor's book out. He had tooled the the lines and the visitor he'd written visitor and date and comment wow. and i signed it and literally two pages before my name was the queen mother opening in the, in the 1950s <laughs> <laughs> so i'm guessing not many visitors <laughs> i think um i mean it, it's still technically that room one of the office spaces for the actual library at hall university but uh, you know he had he was very senior there and he chose his own space and as an office it overlooks the entrance to the library so he could sort of keep an, an eye on who was coming and going but you're right it's like his poems it's very much of its time I, th I think there might be a gas fire Functional. in the corner for, yeah, oh, yeah and very tidy did you try on his glasses because his glasses are on his desk I put them on it's like they're like made out of aquarium glass or something about three inches thick i saw them i didn't put them on though oh, <laughs> i just wanted to um stick with ted hughes for a second yeah. because you're such a bowie fan as a kid. Mm. and the whole thing was that bowie represented this sort of otherness as to all of us you know this guy from yeah. outer space and everything whereas when you heard ted hughes and ted hughes was from the next village yeah and i love this idea that somehow ted hughes who i'd say in terms of language was you know, just as otherworldly as Bowie or anything. But I wonder if the idea of that poet being from the next village that made poetry seem attainable. I don't know. Yeah, it's really interesting because I, I think attainable and also it gave me a, a kind of permission to right. write, both in terms of the subject matter. You know, I recognised so clearly from those early books of his, which he was writing about, you know, Hebden Bridge and... Calder Valley and Mythamroyd, all those places. I, I knew the topography of those poems. I knew the language. I knew the I knew the people. But also, yeah, just that feeling of well, you know, he grew up in a terraced house on the side of a hill in West Yorkshire, and mm -hmm. he could do it. Why can't I do it? And speaking about Bowie, in the same paragraph, in a completely different way, Bowie was also a permission giver for me. With him, it was about it's okay to be different, you know, to be alternative. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a small, traditional, working-class, old mill village. I was the village punk. I was the village mod. I was the village new romantic. You know, I, I, every time a new trend came along, I ransacked my sister's wardrobe to see what I could adapt. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that... Would you be the only one in the village? There were a couple of us. <laughs> um, so, you know, I wasn't right out there on, on my own but it, it was you know it was, it was tough going but people like Bowie who I think actually I'd got I think I'd confused him with Jesus um, when I was younger because <laughs> you know, he, was, he was always talking about being in space and up there in the heavens and I think I'd mix the two people up but I've got a poem where I I write about listening to you know those lines blue blue electric blue that's the colour of my room mm -hmm. and pale blinds drawn all day listening to those in a youth club in Marsden I talk about how he'd probably scribbled them on a groupie's buttock with an eyeliner pencil or something but they'd, they'd made it all in Berlin but they'd made it all the way back to this little youth club in an old mill in a village on the side of the hill and, and mm -hmm. you know it was yeah it was like receiving a message from 
from yeah. a time capsule heading out into the universe. And of course, the spiders were from Hull. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You wrote a book, Gig, which mm. was about your sort of wanting to be a rock star mm. and how this persona kind of took over your life we all know that we all know how that feels you know mm. i mean it's in fact there's a your latest book of 15 poems which is sort of you just talking to your soul that's nagging away at you in a way is a kind of like a like a rock star's persona i mean i'm feeding this into the thinking about bowie as well and creating mm. this other person that you might want to be just talk to us a bit about those early days of of wanting to be a rock star i laugh i shouldn't be laughing we all wanted to be rock stars <laughs> <laughs> well you guys achieved it um mm. yeah yeah well i mean it's funny actually i can think about you know watching top of the pops and uh, what would i have been sort of 17 18 seeing spandau on there doing to cut a long story short was Tony Hadley wearing? I think he was wearing a sporran, if I remember. And uh, no, that was that was Steve. Yeah, he may have been actually. I think it was Steve Norman was or something. Yeah, yeah. And, right. uh, and there yeah. were a lot of spats. You shared it around, spats, didn't you? Spats, you, spats, had, you only had the one. Jodpers going on. The band yeah, Jodpers. But yeah, I, I, um, I think I just wanted to express myself, and wasn't sure how I wanted to do that. In that book that you talk about, Gig, the life and times of a rock star fantasist. I'm trying to test the theory that. I sort of fallen into poetry because, you know, being in a band hadn't really worked out. I think I, I disproved that theory in the end, but by and large, it was just all to do with how do I tell the world what it feels like to be me? How do I tell the world what the world looks like to me? And I probably knew I wanted to do that from somewhere slightly off stage or back a little bit. You know, poetry became a way of of doing that. So you could, you know, you can do it via the books. You can do it through text. In some ways, that you know, it's come full circle now. But at the end of the day, with with LYR, I just stand there and talk, and I don't make myself vulnerable by singing. In fact, we had a lot of arguments to begin with when, you know, the spectre of the live performances came up about who was actually going to stand in the middle. And like, I'm not the front man here, but you know, that's where I I ended up. But I still think that it's not quite the same thing. I, I feel as if I'm still able to do, you know, this, this sort of expression, but at a slight distance in the band. I just want to sort of jump back from what you were saying here about this thing of needing to express yourself, mm. putting out, and then 
wanting to write poetry and everything like that. So you go to uni and do geography, <laughs> English <laughs> lits, perhaps, or you know. <laughs> yeah, I just I just wasn't thinking straight, guy. <laughs> I didn't have the map in front of me. Um, well, I, yeah, I didn't have a lot of options at the time. To be absolutely honest, I was a really poor student back then, and was very unfocused. I was very contrary. If somebody said do this, I went and did the opposite, and I think. It would have been a disaster, actually, if I'd have gone off and studied English literature because people would have been mm-hmm. saying, read this book, and I would have been doing something else. And and in fact, that's what happened with the geography degree. I was interested in geography. I wanted to be a geographer. but I, by I, legs. Yeah, I went to, uh, you know, I went off to Portsmouth Poly and did a geography degree, and all the time I was reading poetry books in the library because, you know, I was misbehaving and doing what I shouldn't be and... I thought that was alternative and subversive and yeah so it was the right thing and actually the books are full of geography they're full of landscape and travel yeah you were a probation officer for a bit someone told us there's an interesting story about a windmill (laughs) does that ring a bell (laughs) about a windmill who told us this Oh yeah, actually, this is a story. Oh. That, yeah, this is a story that I feel like somebody on Graham Norton, where they have to be nudged towards the, oh. you know, the, what they've told the researchers. Actually, I felt a bit like that asking the question. <laughs> that thing with the donkey. Oh yeah, that thing. Um, uh, actually, it was something that a friend told me, but it's very sort of probation officer like. He told me that he'd been a youth worker uh, up in Newcastle, and one day he was driving along the road. And he saw one of the lads that he did some work with. So he stopped and to give him a, a, a list. And they, they were driving through some part of Newcastle. And there's a, there's a windmill there. And I'm not going to do a Geordie accent, by the way. But the lad said, what's that over there? And uh, my friend said, it's, uh, it's a windmill. And he said, well, what's one of them? And he said, well, it, you know, the, the wind blows and the, the sails turn around. And, and it, it grinds the corn. I said, well, how does it do that? And he said, well, there's... There's two big stones and, you know, they used to put the, the grain in and when the wind blows, it's on an axle and it comes around, it turns the stones and it crushes the grain and it crushes and crushes and crushes it and, and what comes out at the bottom is is flour that you make bread with. And this lad looked at him for five minutes and he said, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, as a little thing to back, that when I found out that you'd been a probation officer, for some reason, I don't know why, I saw a slight parallel with Ian Curtis. Because he had some similar, I think maybe it was just the benefits office, but I just wondered if there was some slightly sort of dour civil service, although dealing with people and, a, and troubled people, and a, for sort of a, if that was something poetic in that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, I, w- I was working in Manchester at the time. And he was Macclesfield, wasn't he? So. He was Macclesfield, yeah. But you know, they became known as a as a Manchester band, mm. and I'm sure Manchester people will forgive me for saying that it, it was a pretty grim time in in that city. It felt oh very, man, it was hardcore in the eighties. Yeah, it was yeah. It felt very black and white, and I think my connection with you know Curtis and, and Joy Division was that I sort of tapped into music just at the end of the punk era. And you know the various other things that were around, but I just got to that age where I was looking for something a bit more, you know, a bit deeper, a bit more thoughtful. And then the, those post-punk bands came along at just the right time. So, 
you know, 79 was a big year for me musically. So that'd be Unknown Pleasures and it would be Fear of Music and it would be Three Imaginary Boys. And there were a lot of other things going on then. You know, I think that was the same year that The Wall came out and and Off the Wall. And God, there was a lot of wall-related stuff. Yeah, there, there was, yeah. It was going, going off in, in all directions. But And I, I guess as somebody who was sort of thinking about poetry then and inner landscapes and, and expression that music couldn't have come quick enough at, at the time you know that that quite melancholy introspective noise that that i also remember that it was the you know the next year was when all the electronic music started hitting the scene there's a, there a club in huddersfield called flicks which played you know soft cell and there was um, always a club yeah, wherever and, you uh, went, there was I, remember, I remember going in there one night. I think maybe the first time I went in and going up to the DJ booth and asking him for the B52s, and he leant over and he said to me, "We don't play songs with guitars in." Ah, <laughs> wow, wow! That because because there was a kind of electro police at the yeah. time, wasn't it? Yeah, there? exactly. Yeah, yeah. We have to talk about you being a poet laureate. How that felt, the weight of that, you know, following in the footsteps of Wordsworth, Tennyson, you know, great poet laureates from before. Does it make you nervous knowing what you need to do, what the job is at, at hand and the task? I think it's a, a little bit of a, you know, don't look down situation. You, you could get vertiginous if you saw it that way. And there are these big dinosaur footprints in front of you that you could easily stumble into. But most days I'm just like everybody else you know I, I get up and try and take the top off the marmite jar it's a regular existence and I think living up here keeps me to some extent grounded you know I still live by and large amongst people I, I grew up with and I can't really commit as they say up mm-hmm. here but it's a tradition that yeah I'm, I'm very aware of I take the job very seriously I try and do it to the best of my ability but I also try and do it as me with the poems I, I write I, I just assume that they asked me to do it because of the work that I've written and I want to carry on writing those same poems it was you know incredibly I think moving is the right word you know I remember I was living in the States when they got in touch with me and said would you become the next was warrior? it Princeton where you were yeah the... I was teaching yeah, at Princeton I was actually in Washington that day doing something at the university and um, got this phone call I had a, a long call and then I phoned my dad because my dad had been a probation officer as well and he he was always a bit worried that I'd given up a profession to do this thing called poetry where you know where there were no guarantees of of income and so on and so forth he he thought it was a bit shady and um, I rang him up and I said you know I've got something to tell you and I'll need to do it fairly quick because this call's costing a lot of money you know it's transatlantic so I said you know I'm going to be the next poet laureate and then I could I could hear him could hear him crying and I could hear my mum coming in from the kitchen with a tea towel for him to wipe mm. his eyes mm. and uh, and then he said if your granddad had been alive today this would have killed him <laughs> um, but it, in some ways it, it was like the phone call that I, I always wanted to make because I, I just wanted to say to him look it sort of worked out you know it's worked out in the end but yeah. well, I was just wondering if your dad would have given you a proper bluff Yorkshire response which is like what are the hours <laughs> yeah, what the pay? Yeah, what's the pay? He nearly killed him because he had to keep it quiet for um, oh. for three months before the press announcement. And he, he, you know, he wasn't a man who was given to keeping things quiet. 
I think you have a great skill as the poet laureate because, you know, obviously you have to write about grand things. Like, you know, one poem that comes to mind that you wrote is Patriarchs. Um, I think it's called Patriarchs. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. About the death of uh, the Duke of Edinburgh. Mm. And you somehow don't just focus on him, although there's plenty of very specific biographical stuff about him in there, but you focus on that generation, yeah. which includes a lot of men that we see as our heroes, which fought fascism. Yeah. I mean, I guess you're consciously bringing it down to every man, aren't you? You have to find a way into a poem. You have to find an angle. And with all the, the poems I've written, you know, for, for, for royal events... I've always thought, well, there's enough pomp and circumstance going on anyway without me having to add to it. I just need to find another track. And I've always started by thinking nobody wants a bad poem writing about them. Presumably they want a, something that they could consider to be art and artful. It's difficult to write a poem about you know, somebody that you didn't know. And also, you know, Prince Philip was you know, let's say, a character. So there colourful. You know, yeah, colourful. There were lots of things to, to consider. But you're right. I decided to write about his generation, and there are lots of details in that poem which apply to his past and his life. But The orange box, for example. Yeah, in terms of it being an elegy, I was probably also writing about my dad, who died three weeks earlier. So there, there was some sort of grieving elements, personal grieving elements for me. I think I was writing about a lot of people's dads, mm. you know, and it comes back mm. to that idea of trying to make the poem universal. And and when I wrote a poem for the coronation, I decided to follow up that news story that it was going to be a, a people's event. They were going to invite mm-hmm. a lot of people to Westminster Abbey that day who were, not my phrase, but ordinary people uh, who'd done things in their lives which were thought I was, you know, doing good turns and I just sort of described a day in the life of somebody who'd set off on the train and gone to this incredibly rich occasion and and then was back home by tea time watching it again on the telly. Yeah. Because it's this incredible balancing act, I would think, I don't know if it feels like this to you, of which I think you do very well, of as the laureate, it's that thing of having to speak to and for the country. It is sort of impossible but having said that, that's how I think of poetry. I think of it as an impossibility. I, I've always taken the approach that the idea is the puzzle and the poem is the solution. And I like the now get out of that you know, situation of, of some poems. When, when I was appointed, it was pointed out to me that you know during the next 10 years there probably would be some quite momentous royal occasions uh, i don't think they'd quite anticipated what they would all be but um yeah most of those have already happened and i think if i'd have started thinking then about how i could tackle them poetically i would have been a bit of a nervous wreck but as they've come along there's always a sort of situation or some kind of scene that you can light on as a writer, finding the the poetry in a particular occasion. I just wanted to just read it. Well, 
going to read. Guy, you'll like this though, because in Simon's latest book, LX15, he says, but I got to visit some fancy places and Eve's dropped a thing or two among thrones and crowns. What did she say that time at the palace? I think it's marvellous what you do, seeing things and writing them down. Well, you know what? <laughs> you know what? When I was appointed laureate, I decided that, you know, because... You know, I, I do have some official duties and have to go along to the palace and have conversations. And I decided that I wasn't going to be one of those people that had an audience with the queen or the king and then came out immediately and told everybody, you know, what they'd said. I just thought, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to keep my own counsel. But from that quote, what happened that day was that I was taking another poet, David Constantine, along to the palace. I've, I run a committee which makes recommendations for the what is now the King's Gold Medal for Poetry. And every year somebody is selected and I, I take them along to the palace and they receive their medal from the sovereign. So this particular year, it was David Constantine and we were going along to the palace, but the, it was during the COVID, you know, I can't remember which, which one of the lockdowns, COVID scares, but we were told that we should still go to the palace, but she wasn't going to be there. She was going to be at Windsor Castle. And so we went into a room and instead of it being the queen, it was the queen on a telly on a live link from Windsor. <laughs> and, you know, because it's the palace, it wasn't some swanky flat screen, you know, it was like some old Grundig. Uh, <laughs> the vertical hold wasn't all it, all it could have been. Yeah, so it was just this odd occasion, sort of bowing to a TV screen and, and then having the conversation. But those conversations are always fascinating and, and private. But at the end, as a way of concluding the conversation, she did say, I think it's marvellous what you do, seeing things and writing them down. Yeah. I, I felt in the fact that she'd said seeing things and writing them down gave me permission to, to see that and write it down. But I also came away thinking, actually, that's exactly what we do. <laughs> <laughs> I, want, I put that on my CV. Yeah, completely. Well, I'd like to remember, if Gary, if you don't mind, Simon, I just want to share something that Gary said to me about 25 years ago we actually wrote a musical together about Yeats and more gone and we used to discuss poetry a lot and Gary said something which has always stayed with me is one of my favorite descriptions of poetry which he said you remember when you're first in love and as you go through your day everything you see is significant and related oh my god the number six she went to the number six. Oh my god that's, that's and everything is related and significant and heightened and related to that person and Gary you said the job of the poet is to see the world like that all the time yeah, I mean, that's probably true at the time of writing. You are trying to mm. amplify or to catch that amplification that, that you feel. And that's why you can't write poetry all the time, because you just can't be in that mood. Mm. You, know, you know, you're not in love like that all the time. You're not experiencing the ecstasy of it every second. The but, agony. Oh, <laughs> yeah. But I, I think that's a very useful description. It does suggest that... Uh, no, I was going to say something that I would have come to repent at leisure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, go back to the new album, which is, uh, as we said, we love the we ultraviolet love, yeah. age. Hockney Red really rang a bell with me because I remember as a kid going into my mum's bedroom and she had a little dressing table with three mirrors, you know, a little triptych of mirrors. And in front she had a... Um, I remember there was a some her makeup and then... <laughs> Okay, guy, you know, you're going to love all this story, Go right? But, but, you know, and she had a little jewellery box. Or, and when you were lifted up 
the jewellery box, there was a ballerina that went around and some music played. And I remember distinctly trying on the lipstick in front of the mirror. And it was something I'd do. And I think it was trying to bond with my mum. It was trying to sort of see what her secrets were, but at the same time be enamoured by them. And that's exactly what Hockney Red is about, isn't it, mm. on your on your latest album? Be enamoured by them, even. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can see why I got the job, can't you? Because <laughs> um, yeah. yours, yours is about nail polish, isn't it? Nail paint. What you're oh. describing there, Gary, you could be describing my exact experience. My mum had the same dressing table with the three mirrors. She's still got it, in fact, mm. in her bedroom at home. And, uh, you know, you were asking about whether or not pieces of writing are biographical. It's written generally, but I did exactly the same thing. I went in there, I got the nail polish out, I tried it on. It was, I hadn't thought about it as identification with with my mum, but there was experimentation going on there. There was a Bowie moment for me. And I I was thinking that everybody's done this. And at, at the end of that track, there's a line... I'm not really a waitress, which is actually the name of a of a nail polish by, uh, yeah. I think it's OPC. Uh, it's one of their shade names. It's just fantastic. It's a fantastic name for a nail polish. And actually, I wanted to call that track, I'm not really a waitress. And actually, I think I wanted to call the album, I'm not really a waitress, but we, we, we lost our nerve. That's exactly what that, that track is describing. That, okay, well, uh, I never did that. Now I feel like the weird one. <laughs> yeah. You're the I was, you're I the was very young. Yeah. I, I was very young. I wasn't even prepubescent. <laughs> I was very young. But, but I remember the lipstick smelling of my mother, and it was a way of yeah. finding some closeness and intimacy. My mum also had the, um, the trinket box that when you opened it, the ballerina no. came up and it played the Nutcracker suit. But I, I remember those. I remember from relatives having them. But also the triptych, that was an absolute, and I think it was across pretty much every strata of society was that yeah. dressing table. Yeah. Yeah. Also in the house, that was my mum's area. You know, that was her little corner. Uh, it was sort of private to her. She kept her things in, the, in that room, in that corner of the bedroom. So it was, it was like an altar now I come to think yeah. about it. There's something, exactly what it is. Something exactly like a bit sacred yeah. about it. Yeah. Simon, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. This has been an absolute joy. I feel lifted, lifted up. Yeah, it's wonderful. Bettered. Go off and write a poem, guy. <laughs> well, I've seen things. I'm going to write them down, Simon. <laughs> Actually, about five minutes ago, I was just going to say, have we started yet? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, good luck with the record you, you're going out and playing live do you want to plug that yes uh, we've got a tour in end of September beginning of uh, October starting at the Howard Assembly Rooms in Leeds I think that's something like the 27th 28th or 29th of September uh, and then off to the Deaf Institute in Manchester the night after that's the last Sunday in September and then we've got about seven or eight other gigs dotted around. It's all on our uh, Instagram page, website, etc., etc. London? Yeah. Hoxteth Hall, is it called? Can I come along uh, to that? Can we come We'd along love to you that? to come along. Yes, please. Yeah. We'll get a little VIP area set up. <laughs> well, we know we bring our own velvet rope. Yeah, I was because Gary always, <laughs> when he was saying there's always a club, by the way, that was the thing, because whenever Gary travels, he always has his own velvet rope with him. <laughs> you, can only come, you can only come in if you, if you bring the sporran. 
I, I think it's Tony Hadley's turn, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, we'd love to see you there. Yeah. Good luck. Brilliant. So lovely to meet you, Simon. Thank you so, so much. Talking pleasure. To you. Take care. Total pleasure. All the best. Bye. All the best. Ah. I could have done that all day. All day. Uh, wasn't that wonderful? Just wonderful. And it was rock and roll enough for the rock on tours, I think, wasn't it? No, I think it absolutely was. And I think that's the point. I think what's so nice is that's why he should be the poet laureate, because he comes from that place that everyone does, you know, and he speaks a language that everyone understands. And that comes from having had rock and roll <clears throat> in this country. For, yeah, you yeah. Know. I, think, I guess it's harder in the time, this horrid time of culture wars, because there must be, you know, I noticed he'd written a, a poem for the BBC you know and how great that institution is you know and of course we all know you know the world seems divided at the moment mm. for and against also I think it's a very good which is why he makes the point and I think it's absolutely right the poetry forms like that are actually more needed than ever it's a step back from our endless yeah. feeds you know slow down right I'm going off to uh, make some fishing flies <laughs> 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 well, do I'm something with my flies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go and fish around my flies. Exactly. Ah. We have some extras which you can discover if you sign up to the extras page on rockonteurs.com. That's the sort of housekeeping we have to do to tell you that. Yeah. We get uh, in trouble. Oh, also, because we, we want you to go to, we to do. get the extras because they're great. We're enjoying doing it. And, oh, my God, that was great. I'm, I'm going to go and listen to Sue, some, read some poetry. Just to say, it, it, those albums are so lovely to listen to. And also, I've just had on uh, the audio books of him reading his own poetry. And his, it's, you know, his voice is just such a joy to listen to. But does it compare with Banana Blush? Don't you find some of the backing on that is a little raucous? We, we, I don't think our listeners know what Banana Blush oh, is. I'm sure they all know. What, our audience is sophisticated enough. Banana Blush, yes. It's a load of, of classical-type arrangements written with John Betjeman, who was a poet laureate as he well, was. reading his poems over him. You turned me on to it. I did turn you on to it. I think it came out in, like, 1977. Like we'd have been listening to it then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but now I've got the vinyl. Of course you have. <laughs> Uh, it's good night from me. And it's good night from them. Rock on Tours is produced by Gimme Sugar Productions for Warner Music Group UK.